You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. Every culture has a dignity of some sort. I'm so proud of saying I'm Sudanese now. Like, I'm just sitting on the rocks. <laughs> This is What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition, the podcast that explores current events, history, and culture, as well as social issues of Africa. I'm Dan, a primary source, a nonprofit that provides content and professional development for K-12 teachers in global learning. This podcast is just one of the many ways we help educators bring the world to their classrooms, so all students get the knowledge and skills they need to be global citizens. To learn more about Primary Source and this podcast, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. The creation of this podcast was made possible through the support and collaboration with the African Studies Center at Boston University. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa. And to learn more about the center's teaching Africa outreach program, Visit www.bu.edu slash Africa slash outreach, where you can learn more about resources, professional development, and ways you can deepen the study of Africa in your classroom. Treat Africa as if it were one country. It is hot and dusty with rolling grasslands and huge herds of animals and tall, thin people who are starving. Taboo subjects? Ordinary domestic scenes, love between Africans. Among your characters, you must always include the starving African. Broad brushstrokes throughout are good. Avoid having the African characters laugh or struggle to educate their kids. This is the satirical advice offered by Vinyavanga Wainena in the article How to Write About Africa. This tongue-in-cheek advice is meant to give its audience pause and ask some necessary questions about the way Africa is represented. What narratives of Africa have become dominant? Who has historically, and even today, been in positions of power to make meaning of Africa? Africa has long been portrayed as exotic and alien. Cultural productions have the power to normalize misconceptions that take root. Harsh and inaccurate depictions consist of more than just Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness, for example. They continue today in television, film, news, and even textbooks, just to name a few media that shape perceptions and frequently define Africa as a monolithic continent, known for its deficits, but not much else. But what is missing? What goes unrecognized and underappreciated by these reductive characterizations? What harm comes from these limited and flawed representations? We're going to think about other ways to talk about Africa. Ways that allow for us to cross borders, recognize humanity, appreciate complexity, and understand diversity. We'll be deliberate in valuing cultural contributions to emerge from across Africa, past and present. We'll also think about the multiplicity of identities found here, and the history of Africa that is too often cast aside. In this episode, we'll be joined by a variety of individuals who have intimate connections to Nigeria, Rwanda, Morocco, Sudan, Somalia, and Zimbabwe. We'll also hear from Barbara Brown, 
the retired director of the Public Education Program on Africa at Boston University. Barbara has spent decades learning about and traveling to Africa, from Benin to South Africa and beyond. During Barbara's work at the Teaching Africa Outreach Program, she developed curricula, ran professional development workshops, and generally dedicated her time to helping teachers make Africa more complex, accurate, and meaningful in the minds and lives of students in Boston and beyond. I spoke to Barbara about stereotypes, but also what exists beyond them, and the ways teachers can challenge students to move past misconceptions in order to encounter and appreciate the diversity and richness of life across this enormous, vibrant, and too often misunderstood continent. We have these few boxes in which to put our knowledge of Africa. We have concept boxes. Everybody needs concept boxes. I need concept boxes for Greece today or Russia today, and I've got a couple of concept boxes, or England. But on Africa, the concept boxes are very few. So you just add to those boxes because you don't have the foundation for the other boxes. Concept boxes aren't inherently problematic. We use them all the time to organize and make sense of our social worlds. They can be really helpful in producing mental images and processing the world around us. But we do need to be mindful of how subjective this can be. Our mental maps are constructed based on our own positions, and they may not include the input of people from Africa. We may focus too much on certain categories and neglect others. These mental maps may draw boundaries and make distinctions that exaggerate difference and make Africa seem exotic. So concept boxes aren't without fault, and sometimes the effort to order can actually promote harmful and inaccurate stereotypes. They make one story become the only story, and that's a stereotype. In fact, that's what the original meaning of the word was. So stereotypes arise when we know nothing about Africa except what we hear in the news or what people tell us about their safaris or what we see in the movies about African animals. Without any other stories, we end up thinking it's a continent basically of war and disease. I'd always notice that when people talked about Africa, they would always talk about it as a continent as opposed to individual states. My name is Habib Salau and my parents are from Nigeria. When it comes to identity, I think there's a part that comes from how you see yourself and then another and that comes from societal labels. Cold and developed or told world. My name is Claude Kaitare, born and raised in the land of a thousand hills, which is the nickname for Rwanda. It's beyond understanding. Like, why would someone think that you live in the jungle? The media, the way the media portray Africa, sometimes they, they just think like there's no electricity or nothing is going on there. My name is Chris Ekau. I'm from Nigeria, originally born and bred. One perspective of the African continent that people usually have is that there are tons of problems and they need someone to come and help them out. But there's the huge problem with the word help because saying that you're helping someone sometimes feels as if you're better off than they are and they need you to come and lift them up. There's a lot of misconception about Islam, especially recently in this past two decades with all the events that happened and the misleading of what Islam really is. My first name is Driss Sin, but in Arabic, it's Idris. I was born and raised in Morocco, exactly in Casablanca. Don't judge the religion 
by a specific group. Because religion, it's not that person or that person or that group. Or religion, it's, it's something way greater. The misconceptions are widespread. They have infected probably everybody, and that probably includes me even today. Africa equals problems. Africa is unimportant or uninteresting. It's a small continent. Africans had no real history before the slave trade and Europeans came. Africa has few connections with the rest of the world. And if you pay attention to what I was just saying, you'll notice that it's all Africa is, Africa has. That's all in the singular. That's as if Africa is one place, a single place. Another misconception about Africa is that it's small and that it's unimportant and uninteresting. And then the one that I find personally frustrating is that Africa has no connection with us. That it's just far away and out of sight, out of mind, except for when we need to do some foreign aid. And it's full of wild animals. People would guess that that's not true, but they don't know. I think sometimes it's, I can't find the word. I was going to say sad, but it's not, it's infuriating sometimes. So misconceptions about Africa abound. We've seen that popular associations have the potential to obscure and conceal more than they teach and reveal. Let's hear from Barbara why this truly matters for people in Africa, for our students, and for global citizenship. When you don't teach about Africa or when you give it short shrift, that means Africa doesn't matter. It isn't worth it. It's a continent full of Black people with history, literature, and culture. I think, unfortunately, far too many people don't know anything about Africa and believe that it's because there's nothing to know about Africa. So to hear something different, something more complex, something with positive aspects, is a great release and a source of pride. I'm very proud of the resiliency of my people. Agachiro. Agachiro means dignity. I'm so proud of who I am, where I grew up, the people that I grew up around. It gave me a lot, it gave me a lot of lessons, and one of them is to be hospitable, to be nice and kind to one another. My name is Lina Ahmed. I'm from Sudan, but I grew up in Qatar. I was born here, so came back for college. Sudanese people are very hospitable, I think. When I'm at home, it's very easy to find people. The doors just open all the time. Nigeria is, I would say, the top entertainment hub of the African continent in terms of like music and movies and stuff like that. So whenever I would hear people dismissing all of that stuff, that would rub me the wrong way. Somalis, like every other people in the world, have shared art, history, culture. Um, and there are, in fact, a variety of things, honestly, things that I think are too numerous to explain in this short period of time. I'm Hilary Tamiripi, and I come from the nation of Zimbabwe in Africa. Definitely one of the seven wonders, Victoria Falls. Because when you take a look at the seven wonders of the world, when you say one of them is in your country, people are like, oh, wow. And it's, it's, it's pretty famous and it's really beautiful. When you do teach about Africa, you can have a lot of fun and a lot of satisfaction. 
Okay, so let's hear a folktale that may start the process of showcasing different dimensions of culture and the vastly influential innovations to originate in Africa. There was this herd boy, and he was in charge of the goats. And he took the goats out, and time and again he'd fall asleep because it was boring out there by himself with the goats. And a goat would run away, and then he'd have to go find it. And his parents complained. And one day he was out with the goats, and he noticed that one of the goats was eating berries from a tree, and it was getting frisky. So the boy went over to the tree and ate some berries, and he became frisky too and no longer lost his goats. And that tree was a coffee tree. It is a folk tale that is told all over Ethiopia. They're proud of their coffee. So stories are one way to remind ourselves of Africa's cultural bounty that deserves attention. Recognizing this can go a long way towards replacing stereotypes with a more accurate awareness. But Ethiopia is not South Africa, which is not Ghana, which is not Morocco, which is not Chad. So let's consider the size of Africa and seriously consider this as yet another way to dispel stereotypes. Africa is so huge. It is so huge that you could fit Europe, United States, and also China inside of Africa, with room left over for a few other places like Japan. Africa is diverse. It's diverse in religions. It's diverse in histories. It's diverse in geographies. It's diverse in how people live and where people live. It's just plain diverse. When people in this country visualize Africa, and you can ask your students this, what do they visualize? They tend to visualize villages, neat villages, um, with farms around them. Yet, over 40% of Africans live in cities. And of the people who live in villages, many, if not most of them, travel to towns or cities at some point, or many times, for trade. So. The biggest 15 cities in Africa contain over 3 million people. Lagos is the biggest. It has 21 million residents. Cairo, 10 million. Johannesburg, 7 million. All right, so Africa is enormous and contains many more urban centers than is sometimes recognized. It's the second largest continent in both area and population. There are almost 50 cities with over 1 million residents. Across Africa, an estimated 2,000 languages are spoken. But as large and diverse as it may be, it can still seem really far away. Is that really the case, though? Africa's entwined in your life, but it's not labeled Africa. If you drink coffee, coffee originated in Ethiopia. If you eat chocolate, chocolate originated in Mexico. But its most important sources right now are in West Africa. The word jazz is a Kikongo word. And so jazz has very clear African roots. Coffee, chocolate, jazz, that's just a brief list of ways that Africa is woven into everyday life in the United States. And even still, it's far from comprehensive. But let's return to the fact that Africa is enormous. And with its size comes diversity. We can't talk about an entire continent as if it's one thing. We also shouldn't assume that Africans are all united under the same identity. So let's explore difference and see the mosaic that is life and society among the different populations throughout Africa. My name is 
I'm from Rwanda. There is lots of questions about the history of the country because we did have a dark history and we've only just started rising. We are the phoenix that rose from the ashes. When I meet someone from Algeria or Tunisia or Libya or Egypt, there's a strong connection that builds in real quick. I was living in a more diverse community, both Muslims and Christians. My mom and my dad, they're from the same state, but they have a different dialect. Not only is there diversity across the continent, even within individual countries, we can see ethnic and linguistic differences, just to name a few. Let's look at Nigeria as an example. I am... Awele Uwagu, that's usually hard for people to say, but it's a different language, so that's fine. You grew up in Nigeria and you know that there's way more to yourself, there's way more to your friends, and people just don't get to see all those other parts. All right, my name is Chibuza Eduza. I'm Nigerian, but even though I grew up in America most of my life, when I'm listening to Afro beats, I feel like it speaks to me. It's like me, it's that blend of the African culture with the outside world as well. I'd also want them to know about politics and the difficulty of Nigeria becoming a democracy. It has come close occasionally, but never really. And then you have to look at why. And that's part of the politics category, but it's also history. And part of the reason is the British put together a number of different kinds of places into one colony. And they never meshed. Let's stick with this idea of politics for a moment and think about the stories that are too often marginalized when African politics are portrayed primarily through the lens of corruption. You probably heard about African dictatorships, but you haven't heard other stories, such as since independence in 1966, Botswana has always had free elections. There are free elections in Ghana, in Tanzania, in Senegal, in South Africa. You probably have heard about terrorists in West Africa. Maybe you don't know the country, it's Mali. But you probably didn't hear other stories about what happened in Mali when the terrorists came. How Malians saved almost all of their ancient manuscripts scattered throughout the city of Timbuktu. Barbara's examples of elections and the protection of ancient manuscripts in Timbuktu is a reminder of people's agency, the power of community, and the fact that there's immense history throughout Africa. Well, if people in Mali intervene to protect their culture and history, let's focus there for a moment. If we pause to appreciate the layers of history in Africa, what might we learn in the process? The notion that Africans have no history until Europeans arrived with a slave trade is a devastating stereotype. Devastating because it means that black people and the source of African-Americans, Afro-Caribbeans, is a place with no history, with no civilization. They're barbaric. They're just very violent. Women are oppressed. Just wrong things. People don't know how Islam spreads throughout West Africa and the East African coast. It was by assimilation and by pleasure in this new religion. So... Students need to know about Islam in a bigger way. So you could use the writings about Islam in ancient Mali to expand that notion. It became a Muslim empire 
in around 1300. Let's take a brief digression and talk about Mansa Musa, the 14th century leader of Mali. Focusing on Mansa Musa for just a moment helps tie together some threads about African history, the continent's wealth, and the lasting contribution to humanity made by Africans, while furthering our sense of just how interconnected Africa has been to Europe, the Middle East, and beyond. The richest man who ever lived was a Malian emperor in West Africa named Mansa Musa. And he was wealthy because he controlled the gold in West Africa. Europe needed that gold for the Middle Ages, for the Renaissance, even for earlier. The Middle East needed the gold because they wanted to trade in gold. And Venice and the Italian city-states wanted to trade with the Middle East, and they needed gold because the Middle Eastern countries insisted on trading gold. And most of that gold came from West Africa. Mansa Musa is a source of pride for Malians. His wealth is really impressive, but is that the only reason why he's remembered? What are the most important things to Malians who take pride in this history? It's that he was a Muslim who was generous, who believed in justice, and justice is one of the core principles of Islam. We've barely even begun to unearth and explore the full scope of life throughout Africa, past and present. Let's hear from Barbara one more time about just why it's so vitally important that we break silences and move beyond misconceptions about Africa. If you don't teach about Africa, you are teaching about Africa. You're telling students that Africa does not matter. Hi, my name is Fatima. I'm from Virginia, from, from Somalia. First and foremost, I'm a big believer in the concept of language can heavily impact the way you think. When it comes to language, you're speaking it with other people who are actually from the place, and it's something that can be passed down. Peace in my native language is called Amahoro. So you can say that as you say goodbye to somebody to peace, you know, go in peace, what have you. Marhaba. Welcome. We use that a lot. The word obi, which means heart in Igbo. And I feel like Nigerian people have a lot of heart. In my rural community, there's one called Ndari, where it's kind of like if I have a huge field of crops and I'm about to harvest and I can't do it alone, uh, what do I do? I make food, lots of food, and I invite people to help me and assist me whilst they're drinking, whilst they're eating. It's kind of like that cultural sense, that community where people come, rejoice with me, at the same time working with me. The literal translation is like, I'm not your dad, but I'll raise you. Teachers possess the power to help students construct their understandings of Africa. Classrooms are spaces that can transport students and bring them into contact with the world beyond what they've witnessed firsthand. Some students in U.S. classrooms surely have their own intimate knowledge of Africa, born out of family ties, travel, and other firsthand experience. But this isn't true for all students. How can we help students cross borders, immerse themselves in cultures, and see the relevance of Africa in our continually globalizing world? To help answer these questions, we'll hear from a teacher who has spent time traveling throughout Africa and years crafting her approaches to teaching her students in ways that emphasize complexity, cultural diffusion, and the evolving nature of life throughout Africa. My name is Amy Lake, and I teach third through eighth grade social studies at Lee H. Kellogg School in Falls Village, Connecticut. One of the first 
assignments I have kids do is sit down with some crayons and just if they were to parachute down into Africa right now, what would they see? And it's very typical little huts and people with jugs on their head and elephants, giraffes. The preconceptions is that it's um, a dangerous place, a beautiful place to go to as a tourist, but you wouldn't want to live there, and that it's very primitive. As the kids look at their images of Africa, I ask them, where do they come from? And they list, well, Lion King and Madagascar and a lot of television shows and some books. So we question which of these are valid and which are not, and we start that whole discussion. Let's listen to some teaching strategies Amy uses to nurture her students' critical consciousness while also developing transferable skills that can help them become more discerning consumers of media throughout their lives. The kids are introduced to this reading that they're going to put on their hats of cultural anthropologists and what conclusions can they draw about this particular ethnic group based on this one particular essay. Nasarima is American spelt backwards, and it's really a discussion about personal hygiene and the household bathroom. But because the language is so exotic, they call the medicine chest a charm box, and they call the dentist the holy mouth man. And just using these types of language exoticizes. The kids are just incredulous that they wouldn't even want to spend a single night with these people. You know, they think putting metal on their teeth is going to make them more marriageable. And yet the same kid is saying that has braces on theirs. But when we go ahead, I, I do this early on because then when we go ahead and look at picture books in our library or textbooks, what's the language? Is there bias in the language? And if so, why? What is its purpose? And if so, maybe challenge it. Too often, kids will just read a paragraph and it's like, wait, did Go back and read that again and listen to what you're saying. You know, do you have any questions about that? So really helping kids learn that reading is an active activity. It's just like if they were trying a new food for the first time, they wouldn't just chew it and swallow. They might like swirl it around, smell it, you know, poke at it, feel its texture a little bit. That's really what they need to do when they're consuming. And this in the information age, especially so bombarded with all kinds of information when they type in a search item, to be able to sift through and really question the validity of a site or a source, look for agenda, and sift through to come to their own understanding of the truth. Active reading is a valuable skill that will benefit students during and beyond their studies of Africa. But I'm curious to know a bit more about the resources Amy brings into her classroom when working with her students around the study of Africa. One of the first things I do is I show them this slideshow that's available through the Africa Studies Center at BU called Which Continent? And I tell the kids, look, I've visited five continents and I've taken photographs. And so I'm going to show you a series of photographs. Take a look at them and guess which continent it is. Of course, they're all Africa except for two. And they very easily identify any of the slides that are rural or traditional, shall we say. None of the city's pictures, none of the inside of the City Stars Mall outside of Cairo that is not identified as Africa. Nice looking cars, of course, that can't be Africa. Geographic literacy is really 
thinking about ourselves as part of a global community. And so understanding different systems, natural systems, social systems, societies, helps us how we are interconnected with those, how we rely and depend and will be impacted by actions a continent away. Amy manages to do quite a bit with her students when teaching them about Africa. She develops their capacity to be self-aware and dispel stereotypes and offers them learning tools that bring them closer to the realities of contemporary Africa. But ultimately, what are her goals in doing all of this? I want kids at the end of the unit to think about visiting, going to Africa. I feel like I'll met my goal if kids see Africa as equal to anywhere else on the planet. We've heard Barbara and Amy share their thoughts on why Africa should be taught more frequently and in more sophisticated ways. But what are some other reasons why Africa should be taught? I think the benefit of learning about African history is that Honestly, it's like teaching students math, but leaving out an entire like portion of it. If you want to get to know or understand something better, get closer to it and connect with it. Understanding that we have our pride as a country, as a people, and that people should respect that and try to understand where someone is coming from before forming opinions. Knowledge is always power, you know? When you are knowledgeable, you help other people. Be really critical about the narratives that you're like receiving about Africa and wondering um, like, who, who in history were, were in positions to like write these narratives. That's why we teach, to reduce ignorance or to reduce lack of knowledge, if you will to make sure that the students understand there is harsh realities outside, but there's still good in humanity. Thanks for joining us today for What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition. To learn more about today's episode and to discover more resources about Africa, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts.